welcome to a bonus episode of the Fertility Podcast. We released an episode yesterday, if you're listening in real time, which is Monday the 4th of May, which is the latest in our miscarriage series, so do go and have a listen to that. Today, however, we just managed to catch up with uh, Sally Cheshire, who is the chair of the HFEA, after Kate and I were both involved in an open letter that was put to the government regulator last week, and um, we feel that we played a role last week, don't we, Kate? I hope so. It would be nice to think that every little bit of pressure exerted from all different angles from everybody, whether it be from patients phoning up the HFEA and asking questions, whether it be the other open net letters that have gone to the HFEA and then obviously ours. And basically what we wanted to do was, as the podcast is all about, giving you a place to get access to experts and also for them to respond. We wanted to pose questions that you've been sending us on social media to Sally. So what you're about to hear is um, us having a chat and basically going through your questions. Now we were on Zoom and we were restricted to 40 minutes because that's what Zoom does. And I'm really quite impressed with how we managed to get through our questions. Yeah, I think we didn't, we have about a couple of seconds to spare yeah. before it all, we'd got through it all and we'd even said goodbye and waved at each other. Yeah. So I think it was pretty good going. So have a listen. I mean, we've turned this around really quickly, but this is the latest that we've got from the HFEA. And at the end of it, you'll hear Sally um, kind of give you guidance on if you've still got questions, what to do next. So Kate and I are delighted to welcome Sally Cheshire, chair of the HFEA, to the podcast in light of the news that clinics are being invited to apply to reopen from the 11th of May, which we know has been amazingly received by the TTC community. And we wanted to speak to Sally to talk about how that decision's come about and also put forward some of the questions that you've been sending through to Kate and I um, to get you more answers, really. So welcome, Sally. Thank you very much for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here and to speak to you and Kate. And we were just saying, Kate, weren't we, that we know it's been a pretty, pretty hectic time for uh, for you and your team who, as you were saying, were working round the clock on making this happen. Do you want to just talk us through what's been going on? A little bit. So you'll know if you go back to only the middle of March, was it? When the government announced that um, they, in, the, in light of the COVID pandemic, they would suspend all what they call elective treatment. And I think I just want to say a little bit about elective treatment because we've had some feedback from patients that says, you know, having to have fertility treatment isn't my choice. It's not elective. But just to be clear, elective is the word that the NHS use when it's not an outright emergency. So the NHS made that decision and it's an unfortunate name because no one chooses to go in for surgery, particularly with regard to fertility treatment, but that's the word that's been used. And I think it's important to get that one out of the way first. So the NHS said that they would suspend all non-emergency treatment during the pandemic. And you know, they built the Nightingale hospitals. Um, private hospitals also followed suit. So the only people who were being treated in the first stages of the pandemic after um, the 23rd of March, that was, were people who were in an emergency situation. And what we said in terms of fertility is that patients um, who were having um, cancer surgery, for example, and needed fertility preservation would still be allowed to go ahead and our clinics would stay open for those patients um, to store gametes and embryos. But also um, 
we would allow as many patients as possible to try and finish their cycles if they had started. And we know that there was um, a different response from clinics. And you can imagine that they were um, trying to manage, um, as well as all other NHS hospitals. Some clinics carried on with those cycles and then collected eggs or froze eggs or embryos. Um, but some patients we know had their um, cycles cancelled earlier than the 15th of April. And all I have to say is it was up to the clinic to decide whether they could go ahead. Some of them, of course, had already lost staff to the front line. They'd had some of their equipment um, used for testing, for virus testing from the embryology lab. And some of them also had staff who were self-isolating or who'd been diagnosed. So I think clinics tried to do the best they possibly could. One of the things we stipulated when we said we would also fall in line with the NHS and cancelled non-emergency treatment is that we asked clinics to make, make sure that they communicated with their patients. Um, and I know that hasn't always been perfect, but again, some of them have been better than others. And I'd like to think that most of them have tried. Uh, we do know there's been a massive increase in patients seeking counselling support. But if you actually talk to counsellors, some patients um, are asking different questions. Some of them are clearly distressed at not being able to have treatment. Some of them are very fearful of the virus and what impact it might have. So counsellors tell us they've seen an increase in patients who are just seeking um, help to deal with their general anxiety, not necessarily ready to talk about the implications of their particular treatment and what that might mean. So we do know that there is support out there, and I'm sorry to patients who didn't quite get uh, what they wanted perhaps from their clinic. Um, we have um, a dedicated inquiries line. I've certainly seen lots of inquiries from individual patients running through. We've tried to communicate via um, social media. Um, we have frequently asked questions on our website. And in particular for clinics, we've sent out letters probably every few days. So there have been three to clinics in the last week. And I don't think I've ever seen our staff work so hard or have to respond so fast. And as you said, you know, we, we aren't medical or embryology people by and large. We've had to rely on professional guidance. So from the UK bodies, from the British Fertility Society and ARCS, um, the clinical scientists, but also from um, Europe and America who advised similarly to stop treatment. Um, until we knew a few more things. And their guidance has been very similar to the UK all along. Um, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists also had to think about whether um, they considered there was any risk in early pregnancy. Um, and they've also issued a couple of sets of guidance. So I think everybody's issued at least two sets of guidance over the last four weeks from the professional bodies. We've issued a number of letters to clinics explaining our requirements. And we've also tried to communicate with patients as best we can. Um, the onus really on starting treatment now that we have made the decision is that clinics need to decide uh, if and when they can restart. And the most important thing through all of our meetings, through our communications, has been that patients will be as safe as possible and clinic staff will be as safe as possible. We all know that clinic staff um, want to serve their patients, that's why you're there. But you have to be able to work in a safe environment to be able to treat those patients. And that's really, really important, I think. So over the last week or so, um, 
the professional bodies have issued their latest guidance, which is cautious optimism, and also that there are a number of conditions that need to be put in place before treatment can start to make sure that staff um, and patients are safe. Um, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, um, issued a letter to the NHS on the 29th of April last week asking them to think about how services could restart over about the next six weeks. Some of those are clearly more urgent in terms of cancer um, and mental health particularly. Some of those will take longer um, to resurrect and the situations might be different locally depending on how many uh, COVID patients there still are. So we responded to that and we'd already been planning for quite a long time. Um, we've had daily meetings. We've had, we have our board meetings every six weeks and we've had them weekly. <laughs> and we have another one on Thursday. So we've been trying to monitor the situation and decide what would need to be there to be safe. Um, and if you want to talk about the criteria we put in place, I'm very happy to, but I, I guess I ought to pause. No, thank you for, for just clarifying it because I, th I think from... from from the, the patient's point of view, the conversations that we've had is is obviously the anxiety element of it all, the time element of it all. Um, and I think, as you said, you know, the whole communication of it, sadly, some people were treated well and others weren't. And I think that there wasn't that consistency is, is where, from the people that we've been speaking to, that there's been the, the most concern. I think clinics had to do the best they could in the circumstances. Um, and you know, we can all learn from this, can't we? But the, these are unprecedented times for all of healthcare. I think this is the most difficult decision the HFEA has ever had to make in 30 years, really. And the board and the staff have tried so hard to get it right. And I know that you do talk about your own experience, Sally, in this role. So, you know, as a former patient, you, you know the feelings that a lot of the people going through this will be experiencing. Yeah, I think it's... Um, I thought about it this morning in terms of pregnancy. You know, one of one of our criteria, quite rightly, was that there was no, or that there was as much evidence as possible to say there was no increased risk in pregnancy. And when I was thinking about it this morning as a patient, you know, pregnancy is somewhere over the rainbow, isn't it? It's a long, long time away. And if you are trying to think about having treatment, it's probably not even possible in some cases to even think that you might get that far. But we have to try and balance those needs and our understanding of what patients are going through with the practicalities. And if the Royal College or, or if there was evidence from around the world that pregnancy was more risky for women or for their babies, then we needed to be able to say that to patients while understanding that that's their dream and it might be a very long way away. That was great, Sally. Thank you for giving us that kind of rundown of what's, what you've been doing over the last few weeks. That was really useful, and I'm sure that's helped with some clarity as well to um, our listeners. Um, we've, we have got questions um, that have come, as, as Natalie says, directly from um, the people that we've been talking to on social media. Some are also my patients as well. So we'll kick off with those, if that's okay. Of course. First, First of, of all, Sally, it's, it's, it's about, about the prioritisation of and whether, and whether women who are older or have, have low AMH, whether they'll, they'll have priority over treatment restarting or seen in order of cancellation because there has, has been a clinic confirmed that, that is the case, or whether, whether you would instruct clinics to do this to avoid disparity. I don't think we're in a position to instruct clinics on the order that they need to treat patients in because they will know all those patients or couples individually. 
What we know from the governments, and it's quite an interesting position in England, is that Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have all committed to not disadvantaging patients as treatment restarts. So we are assuming that clinics would treat patients in the order in which they were there to have treatment. If someone has a particular issue with low AMH, for example, then we'd encourage them to talk to their clinic and ask whether there's been any detriment. It's, a, it's only actually a couple of months, um, bizarrely, since we um, asked treatment to stop, but to really talk to their clinic. Um, in terms of starting again then, and when patients might expect to be seen, um, it's important to understand that some clinics will be ready to start almost immediately because they've been planning during this downtime. And other clinics may not be able to start immediately because they might not have their staff or their equipment back. They might be relatively small. So as an individual, if you were about to start treatment, it's important to ask your clinic. If you're a little bit further back in the process and you haven't actually chosen a clinic or you have, but you haven't had um, scans or kind of early workups, then it's important to find out whether that clinic will be operational. What we're going to do at the HFEA is make sure that on a daily basis we put on our website which clinics are open and which are still in process. So, for example, you know, if you live in Birmingham and there are five or six clinics, we would tell you that three of them were open. It's up to the clinics to decide. There isn't a specific date at which all clinics will start treatment because it's very important for them to have looked at their staff, to put their plans in place looked at the risks and decided how they can offer a service because it, we all talk about the new normal, don't we? The new normal will be very different. There will, we'll have to have social distancing in waiting rooms. There'll have to be distancing as far as you can between staff and patients. Many of the early consultations will have to take place over video or phone. Um, the clinics might operate a longer day to space patients out and they will have to source enough protective equipment to make sure that patients and staff um, are still safe. So there's a lot for clinics to do. We're going to do this by a self-assessment process, which is how we do inspections. So all clinics will have to fill out a self-assessment questionnaire to tell us whether they're ready and how they've considered the risks and what their new procedures are. And they all ought to be talking to their patients right now irrespective of the time to opening because they should be providing support and they should be answering their patients specific questions about where they are in the queue. So that self-assessment questionnaire can be, uh, clinics can apply to us with a completed questionnaire next Monday from the 11th of May and our inspectors will turn that around in a few days um, and authorise clinics to reopen but it, it won't be all of them and I know that's so difficult. That's really interesting. I'm just going to pick up on when you said about clinics communicating with patients, because that leads me on to my first question to you, Sally, is we're hearing quite a lot about from ladies that they're saying that clinics generally aren't particularly good at communicating with them, they're not particularly good at getting back to them in a timely manner. When it comes to clinics going through the process of applying, Will you be making sure that clinics follow due process in a timely manner so there's no major time lag for ladies restarting their treatments? Yes, all we can say is that they need to apply as soon as they feel that they're able to treat patients. 
we will make sure they have all the right processes and procedures in place and that we don't think they're putting patients or their own staff at risk. In the interim, all I can say is um, some clinics, a lot of clinics, have been operating with just a skeleton staff to look after frozen gametes and to answer patients' inquiries whether they could. I'm really hoping that where it might not have been timely, that's going to ramp up in the next week or two. Now they realise that they need to get their staff and their equipment back and they need to make sure that they're going to run a safe service. But um, by all means, patients can um, come through our inquiries line if they don't think they're getting an answer from their particular clinic. But I would just urge them to keep trying. You can imagine if you work in a clinic, they're going to be inundated now by the thousands of patients. And you know, Kate, from working with patients, um, you want to treat them all, don't you? You want to help them all. Um, But you can only have, you know, one conversation at a time. Yeah. And I guess that's what, you know, a bit of patience needs to come through. We've already, our ladies have been so patient, haven't they, over the last few weeks. So we're just asking them to be a little bit more patient just for a little bit more time. And then hopefully things will be back to normal. We've said in our letter to clinics last week that they can apply to reopen from the 11th of May. There'll be a short assessment process and we hope that patient treatment can start soon thereafter. So potentially by the end of May um, or a little bit earlier if they're really prepared in a clinic. But of course, you don't just kind of pop up on the 11th of May for an egg collection. You know, you will have to be seen properly by medical, nursing, administrative staff. You will have to understand where you are in the queue, which hopefully is what it was six weeks ago. And you will have to understand maybe that clinics can't potentially treat quite as many patients as they did back in March due to social distancing and to spreading patients out over a longer day. We all, clinics, patients, us, we all want to treat as many patients as soon as possible. Because we had a question about treatment being able to pick up where it left off and again I think you just answered that in that that's the conversation to have with the clinic specifically isn't it? It is. Can I just pick up on one specific point for England, really? So, as I said before, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have committed to not disadvantaging patients. It's a slightly different position in England, and we are urging NHS England um, to make those fair decisions as well for all patients, the majority of patients who are treated in England. It is actually up to a local clinical commissioning group to fund treatment. So I think that the first decision, if you are a patient in England, is to receive that assurance from your clinic that you are still in the same place in the queue, as it were, or if you have a particular decision, um, that you ask your clinic for help and advice. Separately, I do know there are some patients who are worried about um, funding, And we know that that is still a decision for clinical commissioning groups. We are pressing NHS England. I have no powers in that area at all. But we're pressing the government um, who who think that patients should be treated fairly. And we are pressing NHS England and the CCGs to make sure that that happens. If you are a patient and you are approaching the cut-off age for funding, which will make you very anxious... In the same way that we worked with the government last week to extend the the 10-year storage limit um, for gametes and embryos, we hope that there will be 
um, similar sympathy for patients who are approaching the limit and an extension so that they can still access NHS funding. I, I don't have an answer on that, I'm really sorry, but all we can do is work in the background as hard as we can to try and make sure that happens. So again, if you have a particular funding issue, please speak to your clinic. I think even knowing that conversation is being had on patients' behalf is so key because it's such a big worry for people. It's so annoying when the clock is literally ticking in front of your eyes, you know, during lockdown. We appreciate it's a huge worry whether you're storing eggs and embryos um, or whether you're, you're trying to access treatment and hopefully get funding for that. Um, so we are waiting, on a, waiting an answer and we will um, publish that as soon as there is one. But it isn't in our power to decide solely. All we can do is keep pressing interesting question that I've had here was a a patient was told that treatment will only recommence initially for patients who are likely to have successful outcomes which I found quite interesting I'm not quite sure where that came from and it was one particular clinic is this correct I'm horrified by that statement Um, I hadn't heard it if the patient wants to contact us directly then perhaps we can do something about it via our inquiries desk. But my understanding uh, would be that clinics, although it's at their discretion, should treat people in a fair manner, you know, from the waiting list that they had previously. That's only ethical and the right thing to do, isn't it, in the circumstances? Absolutely, because I think this, this, this doesn't sound ethical at all. And I was horrified. Um, and I do believe that information was given out by the clinic in a um, closed Facebook forum. So whether it was misunderstood, I don't know. But this is the question that then came to, to myself, which I just thought, crikey, please, 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 can this not be true? If clinics really are being unethical in terms of pursuing their success rates, then you have to realise that at the moment around 6,000 patients are treated every month, um, which makes around 50,000 patients a year and around 70,000 cycles because clearly some patients will have more than one cycle. Then if clinics treat fewer patients over the coming months because they simply um, can only fit that many patients in, then we'd anticipate that you know by the laws of averages their success rates would still be the same. They're just treating fewer patients and therefore I'm adamant that clinics shouldn't be trying to um, game the statistics, as it were, and they should be treating their patients fairly and in the right order. With potentially the odd person, as you said, with a a waiting cancer surgery or potentially with a very low AMH and particular circumstances, but they need to discuss that with their clinic. Yeah. Shouldn't be the norm at all. In terms of the different types of treatments, um, another question is on whether donor treatment will resume at the same time as others. And I don't know whether there's been been any specific guidance in terms of different types of treatment. I don't think the treatment applies to specific um, types of treatment, including donation. But donation, of course, falls into two categories, doesn't it? People with a known donor who they might take along um, during their treatment and people who use an unknown donor through their clinic. So I guess if you are needing donation treatment and you are using an unknown donor, then you are still in the same position as you were before the lockdown. Those gametes will still be, will already be in the clinic or um, frozen for treatment. Um, And that doesn't seem to present any particular issues as long as you can undergo the counselling 
um, that often accompanies um, donation treatment. So that doesn't seem to be a particular problem, but I'd say ASCII clinic. If you have a known donor, uh, someone in your family or a friend who is involved with your treatment, then again, um, as long as they're well and you're well, and clinics can accommodate the social distancing and the things that are required, then that wouldn't seem to be a particular problem. What clinics will probably have to do is ask patients questions about whether they've been diagnosed positive with the virus or whether they've had any symptoms in recent weeks and potentially also ask those questions when clinics and or their donor um, start um, to arrive for treatment. So um, we've talked about, for example, clinics testing all patients, um, testing their temperature when they arrive, but we know that temperature is notorious and reliable. So clinics are thinking about the best way that they can put the professional guidance into practice. But at the moment, although there are extra barriers and processes around donation, as long as your clinic can cope and you and if it's a known donor are well, then that would seem to be okay. I don't think the professional bodies have advised on any particular um, type of guidance. Um, The difference we have with Europe, and it's important to say this because people will be aware that the European guidance from ESHRA Um, came out um, a few days before the British guidance, which is due out shortly. The lockdown restrictions have been lifted in some countries like Germany or Denmark, um, and therefore treatment has started a little earlier, simply because um, their countries are opening up and fertility treatment is something they feel they can offer. But the ESHRA guidance, because those countries have wider testing programmes, has suggested that all patients should be tested for the virus before they start treatment, and if it's positive, you will be asked to wait That can't happen in the UK because we don't have testing to the same degree. So if we can't yet test all NHS staff on the front line and we can't yet test all patients who go in for surgery, although we're working up to both of those, it would seem impossible to be able to test fertility patients um, specifically for the virus. But clinics will have to put in, uh, they'll have to follow NHS guidelines Um, which are to test for patients undergoing surgery, but not to test for the virus in day case patients. And in the vast majority of cases, our patients are day case Mm. cases, even though we fall a little bit in between because you have to go for multiple appointments. And that's the difficulty. So the professional bodies um, have been really good at confirming um, that whilst we can't operate as mainland Europe Um, are insisting for fertility clinics we can do the best we can and ask about symptoms talk to patients about whether they've already tested positive and if they have any symptoms talk to them about what that means and I guess as more and more testing becomes available that could well be something that starts in the future it could could. and that makes sense doesn't it if we are testing the population at large um, and we've tested patients who are having surgery then we start to test um, day case patients you know for example GPs aren't opening up yet yeah. GPs will still yeah. be doing phone and video consultations um, yeah. but at some point we'll have to test a wider group of people and our patients will be in that group when obviously the Covid crisis occurred the first time obviously nobody was expecting it but there's been quite a lot of talk surrounding the NHS and the government with regards to PPE about having contingency plans um, available, you know, all the time for any pandemic that might occur. So I'm quite interested in, and one of the questions we've had from um, a patient is, 
did the HFEA have a task force to deal with COVID-19? If they didn't, has this now been a lesson learned so that should we confront a pandemic again in the future, which is actually very, very likely, that you will have a process in place to be able to respond quicker and to give more clarity information to patients? So I think we've, we've tried as far as we can to communicate with patients um, and with our clinics through the start. This is unprecedented. Um, and you'll know if you have any contact with the NHS that we've planned for pandemics for many, many years. Um, probably not one like this because most of the pandemics that people envisage were flu pandemics. Um, you know, people in health would say we were overdue a flu pandemic. Um, and we've planned for that. But flu is very, very different because you um, there isn't the infection rate that we've seen and there aren't the dire consequences that we've seen in quite the same way. So you can imagine that fertility services would have operated potentially through a flu pandemic, dependent on whether patients were ill and whether staff were ill. But this is very, very different. Um, we've had an internal task force and we've worked really closely with the professional bodies, with the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, with the Department of Health, and we've tried to communicate um, any time we had news over the last weeks, which seems like months, um, to patients. Um, hindsight's a wonderful thing, and maybe we could have done that a little better, um, but we did our best in the circumstances. As I say, I don't think I've ever seen our staff work so long and such, so hard, really. Um, remember that we're all working from home, as is everybody else that we deal with. Um, and we've tried to do the best possible, but we'll commit, you know, on an ongoing basis to updating patients as and when we can. Uh, as I said, through indicating when clinics are open, whether there's any new guidance on treatment and what the requirements are. And also, um, should anything else change around, you know, the government lockdown. Um, just to go back to our conditions, I think we'd said we would allow safe treatment um, to open when the NHS wasn't going to be overwhelmed. And of course, it looks like the NHS is in a good position now. There are still many hundreds of people who are ill with the virus, but everybody stopped all non-emergency treatment just in case the NHS was overwhelmed. And I think we've, we've crossed that one off and the NHS has reported that they're doing well. We also talked about the risk in early pregnancy. And even though that is a, you know, a dream that's some way off, we needed to think about that. Um, the Royal College are continuing to issue guidance as and when they have new evidence. But at the moment, they've said there is no increased risk of either miscarriage or infection. Although a small number of people um, do suffer as a result of being pregnant, there is no overall evidence one way or the other to indicate um, a risk in early pregnancy. And therefore, we have to abide by um, the obstetricians and gynaecologist guidance, and that seems to be okay. We talked about being compliant with the government lockdown. And one of the essential reasons you can go out of your house is to have medical appointments. So we are compliant, but we didn't want to cause a mad rush to clinics by patients when we are still broadly in lockdown. Um, as I said, I think counsellors um, and clinics are hearing about a large number of patients who, you know, contrary to popular belief, might not want to start treatment immediately. 
until this goes away. They're actually quite anxious about the virus. And if you are in that position, I'd urge you to just ask for as much information as you can. But you have to make a decision that you are comfortable with or that you and your partner are comfortable with. And when you feel in the right mind to begin treatment again, that is entirely a personal decision. So the last criteria is really the most important one, and it's about providing that safe service to staff and to patients. And that's what we're in the middle of at the moment. We've tried to operate internally um, as well and as immediately as we can. And as I said, we're the first service um, that's really back in operation or could be on a national basis. Um, and as and when guidance changes or it becomes apparent that clinics can't cope, um, then we may have to revisit. But at the moment, we're cautiously optimistic. And you've explained really well there, Sally, why you made the decision to cancel um, treatments. One question that, again, question that I've got is, did the HFEA consider the psychological impact that patients were going to experience? Yeah, I knew you'd say that. (laughs) You'll know that not only me, but a number of people on our board, in fact, the majority of people on our board have either been patients or work in a clinic. So for us, it's the... You know firsthand, don't you? I know firsthand and they know firsthand. And if you listen to our board meetings, you know, patients are always at the forefront of our mind. They have been ever since I became the HFEA chair and they were before that. Um, The patients that we treat and the patients who, you know, are successful and the majority unsuccessful, we really care about what happens to them and we care about how clinics support them. Um, And we know it's been hugely distressing for patients Um, It's interesting now, we, I don't know whether you're aware, we have a new minister who's um, Lord Bethel and um, he has two IVF children. So he completely understands there were, um, if anybody wants to look him up, um, he's only been our minister relatively recently, but I think that's a really positive um, sign. He's really willing to work with us um, and on the decision last week, and he knows exactly how it is. One of his tweets, if you find it last week, was um, talking about how when he and his wife were having treatment, there was a snowstorm and they couldn't have their treatment. And he remembers that time when it was so distressing to not be able to get to a clinic. So when there are people in government and in the Department of Health who are doing an amazing job and amongst our board, all we can do is try to do our best by patients and make sure that we um, we do support them um, and that they get that support from clinics. But we know it's been, you know, very emotional. If people are listening and they've still got questions for you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Is it on your Facebook page? We know you've not got a presence on Instagram, which is where a lot of the TTC community are. Are you likely to come onto Instagram? Instagram? I'll take that up. Um, you contact us via Facebook or Twitter, or on our inquiries line, and we will come back to you. Still, for patients, I think the most important thing is to try to get through to your clinic, because the questions that you have now about when you can start treatment, how the appointments will work, where you are on the list, and whether there are any additional requirements will be specified by by those clinics, and we will let you know via the website who's open and where you can go. 
Okay, so there you have it. I think, you know, really interesting advice and it's really good to get that clarity in terms of what they're doing, not only with the clinics, but with ongoing conversations with government, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I think everybody's really looked forward to having a bit of clarity, having some answers to questions. And even if, you know, Sally has not been able to answer all of the questions because a lot of the a lot of the guidance is going to come from clinics themselves and clearly she's not always going to be able to answer those types of questions but at least now everybody knows where they can go for support and importantly if you feel that your clinic isn't responding to your needs in the way that you would really like them to or would hope given the guidance that that would happen then contact the HFEA and they will then hopefully be able to look into your inquiry. And you did also hear Sally say that she was going to maybe get on the Instagram case. So who knows? Oh, wouldn't that be great? I think we might have to remind her about that. But I think, yes, it, wouldn't it be cool if HFEA were on Instagram and could respond directly to patients where their audience are? Yeah. Which would be great. In the meantime, we will do our utmost to keep you updated with the information that we get to. Be sure to follow us on our socials. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. And as well as doing that, it would be amazing if you can rate, review, subscribe and share to this podcast to make sure that people that aren't already following us find out where we are and hear this latest from the HFEA. Normal episode will resume next Monday so again make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that. 